Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. This episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by Wondery Business Wars. In the newest season, Vaccine Wars, Business Wars follows the pharmaceutical industry's unprecedented race to save lives and create a market worth billions of dollars. You can listen to the new season on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Yesterday morning, the U.S. Labor Department released the always highly anticipated jobs report this time for the month of April. And I think that the anticipation was heightened more than most because there were some very big expectations regarding how many jobs were going to be added during the month. In fact, if you look at the consensus, it was pretty wide. The low end of the forecast was for an additional 755,000 jobs to be created. But if you look at the upper end, 2.1 million was the high end of expectation. So you had some people that were very optimistic about a huge increase in employment during the month of April. And this was going to follow the 916,000 jobs that we were told were added during the month of March. Well, when the actual number came out, it pretty much shocked everybody in how low the number was. 266,000 jobs were all that were added during the month of April. Didn't even come close to the low end of estimates. I mean, this has got to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, misses relative to expectations. 700 
and 32,000 fewer jobs were created than were expected. And if you look at the revisions, because they took the 916,000 number that was originally reported for March, and they reduced that to 770,000. So that's another 146,000 jobs that disappeared. They People thought those jobs were created, and now they were told that they really weren't. So if you add the revision to the, the miss, you're talking about 878,000 jobs that people thought were going to be there that are not there. The unemployment rate, which a lot of people watch, was expected to move lower from 6% down to 5.8%. Instead, it went in the other direction up to 61 And if you look at the optimism that forecasters had for that number, the range was for a decline to 5.9% at the high end, all the way down to 5.2% on the low end. So nobody believed that the unemployment rate was going to rise. Everybody believed that it would fall. The only question was how far, and you had some people who actually thought unemployment would drop all the way from 6% to 5.2%, and again, it went up to 6.1%. Now, part of the reason for the rise was the increase in labor force participation. That was expected. It was at 61.5% in the prior month. The expectation was for a slight increase to 61.6. Instead, it increased slightly more to 61.7. But of course, people are going to return to the labor force uh, as the economy is reopening and people that were temporarily out of the labor force due to COVID now re-enter the labor force as more and more people have been vaccinated and the threat from COVID is somewhat diminished, you would expect labor force participation to rise. But even though people expected it to rise, the expectation was for the unemployment rate to fall. Instead, it went up. Now look at the private sector payrolls because the numbers there are just as bad. They were looking for 893,000 new private sector jobs. Instead, we only created 218,000 private sector jobs. Now, the important thing is that Everybody thought that the numbers in April would be much stronger than the numbers in March. And instead, they ended up being much weaker. And in fact, we revised down the private sector payrolls from 780,000, which was originally reported, to just 708,000. So we lost 72,000 on the revision. And the actual number was 675,000 fewer than what had been expected. Of course, the real problem is in manufacturing. Manufacturing was supposed to add 55,000 jobs in April, which would have been an improvement on the 53,000 that were added in March. Now, that number was actually revised up to 54,000. But the number that we got for April was minus 18,000 jobs. And again, look at the consensus range. The worst case scenario was a gain of 36,000. And there were some people that expected bigger gains. The upper end of the forecast was 85,000 jobs gained. Nobody believed 
that jobs would be lost. In fact, nobody believed that fewer than 36,000 would be added, but we lost 18,000 manufacturing jobs. In fact, if you look at that 266,000 net new jobs that were created, you know, if you actually look at the birth death model, the government assumed that 298,000 jobs were created by the new businesses that were formed during the month of April. Now, again, the government has no proof that these new businesses were formed. In fact, none of the new businesses that the government claims were formed may in fact have been formed. In fact, it's possible that businesses shut down and that the net uh, gain was a loss of new businesses. But nonetheless, the government is going to assume that 298,000 jobs were created by those businesses that they assume uh, were born during the month. Well, if you net out the imaginary jobs from the ones that were actually reported, that would leave a net loss of 32,000 jobs on the month, meaning more than 100% of the jobs that were supposedly added during the month were solely a function of the guesstimate for the number of jobs created during the birth death model. Now, of course, to me, nobody should really be surprised by this report. Because if you look at the reason for the so-called recovery, why is the U.S. economy recovering? Well, because a lot of people are spending money. Even people who don't have jobs are spending money. People are spending more money unemployed than they used to spend when they still had jobs. How is all this being made possible? It's being financed by massive deficit spending that is being enabled by the Federal Reserve, monetizing all this debt. You also have the added wealth effect of a stock market bubble and a real estate bubble and a cryptocurrency bubble and a bubble in everything that you could possibly think of with the exception of gold. You know, I, I, I read into a guy the other day here in Puerto Rico who was telling me about what's happening with baseball cards. And he had just bought a baseball card, a Mickey Mantle uh, rookie card. I forget, he paid five, $6 million for the card, some record amount. But he was telling me about what was going on in baseball cards and this phenomenal appreciation uh, that was being seen in, in that one area. And this is just typical, what's going on with, uh, with everything that is some type of asset that has any type of scarcity, whether real or manufactured. We are flooding the economy with fiat money, and so people are spending it. But why would anybody believe that the result of that would be robust jobs growth? It's not. You don't need jobs if you're printing money. If people are just getting money from the government, what's the point of working? I mean, why bother? I mean, normally, if you want money, you have to work to earn it. But not today. Just stay at home. The government's going to send you money. So when you have an economy built on spending printed money, that type of economy doesn't require a lot of actual work. The work is being done abroad. That's where all the jobs are being added. They're being added in all the countries that are making all the stuff that we're buying with all the money that the Fed is printing. But of course, this whole thing is temporary because now the jobs are overseas. Later, the purchasing power is going to be overseas because you cannot continue to run an economy on a printing press. The whole thing is going to collapse as soon as the dollar crashes and ends this party. And that is exactly what is going to happen.
Let's also look at the average hourly earning numbers in the report. The consensus was for earnings to be flat after a drop of 0.1% in March. Instead, we rose by 0.7%. That's the month-over-month number. The year-over-year number, we were supposed to see minus 0.4, and we got up 0.3. So wages are pressured, right? We're seeing more upward pressure on wages, even though we're not getting as many new jobs employers are having to pay those workers more money who are returning to those jobs, which of course makes perfect sense given the fact that employers now have to compete with the government that is offering huge incentives not to work. For a lot of people, the return on being unemployed is far higher than the gains from being employed. So obviously if you're an employer and you've got to convince somebody to take a job, you're going to have to pay them a lot more money now, given the alternatives that they have. You know, most people prefer leisure to work. And therefore, if the government is paying people to take vacations, well, you're going to have to pay them a lot more to give up those vacations and come into work. In fact, it's interesting because after this report was released, there was a press conference and both President Biden and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen spoke about this report. And they both agreed that even though it was lower than expectations and quite a bit lower, that it doesn't mean that the recovery is somehow uh, been disrailed. They think everything is fine. Everything is going well. And it's a result of their, their stimulus and all their plans. Although they did use the lower than expected numbers to show that they still have a lot of work to do, that even though we're making progress, there's still a lot more that needs to be done. And this proves that we need this additional stimulus. We have to have Congress pass these new proposals that we have. And in fact, Biden spoke, I think for the first time, about his new plan that he calls the Biden blue collar blueprint for America. A lot of Bs there, Biden, blue, and blueprint, blue collar and blueprint. But it may be a catchy name, but it's not going to produce any prosperity. You know, the idea that we build a strong economy based on government central planning, the way we get a strong economy is through a vibrant free market. The government can't build anything. I mean, the government can build bureaucracies, but bureaucracies stand in the way of prosperity and economic growth. They are barriers. They're roadblocks. If Biden really wants a blueprint to build back a stronger America for blue-collar workers, free market capitalism is the only plan that's going to work. Biden's plan is destined to fail. Every bureaucrat that's ever tried it has failed. The only thing that succeeds is free market capitalism. But Biden does not understand that. But the what I want to do point out about this press conference, because both Yellen and Biden were asked if they believed that the generous extended unemployment benefits were partially to blame for the weak jobs report, meaning that because the government is paying workers not to go back to work, maybe workers are not going back to work because the government is paying them not to work, right? Very obvious. In fact, there's really no way to deny that 
these lucrative payments not to work are behind the reason that a lot of people are choosing not to work. I mean, it's just common sense. If the government's going to pay people not to work, people are going to not work to get the payments. I mean, that that's not rocket science, but apparently it's beyond the uh, the scope of most economists, certainly the ones that work for government, to understand. And it's certainly beyond the grasp of Biden and Yellen because they both denied any relation to the government paying people not to work and people deciding not to work to accept those payments. I mean, only government economists could fail to understand this obvious relationship. As I mentioned just earlier in this podcast, there is a preference for leisure over work. People would prefer to have leisure than work. The only reason they give up their leisure to work is because they need the money because otherwise they can't pay their bills. They can't pay the rent. They can't put food on the table. So even though they would prefer leisure, they have to work. Well, if the government says, no, you don't have to work, you can have the leisure that you prefer and we'll replace your lost income. In fact, we will actually give you more money to take a vacation than what you would earn if you gave up that vacation and went back to work. How can anybody not realize that there is a link here between these lucrative payments not to work and so many people choosing not to work? And again, I've talked about it on this podcast. It's not just that being paid more not to work is the reason that people are choosing not to work. Even if they got paid the same, they would still choose not to work. And in fact, even if the unemployment benefits are lower than what you can earn working. In many cases, people would still choose to accept less money not to work than more money to work because there is a value to be placed on that leisure that they have to give up to take a job. Then, of course, you have all the other costs that are incurred when you have a job, all your commuting costs and things like that, that factor into the equation. So employers have to pay workers enough money to overcome the added costs of going to work and the opportunity cost of giving up all that leisure. And clearly, the cost-benefit analysis of not working versus working has been heavily skewed as a result of these generous government incentives. But it's not just you know, common sense that would you know, get you to conclude that this is the cause. You also have all of the anecdotal evidence. I mean, I don't know how many articles I have read, but there's plenty of them on the internet in which they interview employers. And these employers specifically say they can't hire people because they don't want to work. They don't want to give up their lucrative deal with the government to collect unemployment benefits. And so they're turning down the jobs. And of course, not always are the employees being honest or the potential employees. I'm sure that sometimes they don't want to say, well, the reason I don't want to go to work is because my unemployment deal is so lucrative. I bet a lot of people will say something like, well, I I just don't want to work because I I don't want to risk getting COVID, right? Because that's the easier thing to say. Look, I don't want to risk getting COVID. But I'm sure a lot of these people who claim that going to work is too risky because they might catch COVID. I bet these same people during their free time are out and about interacting with other people in ways that are every bit as dangerous or even maybe more so 
than what would happen if they actually went to work. I mean, they're exposing themselves to the virus during their leisure. I'm sure they're not just, you know, hold up, you know, in their homes in quarantine. They're probably out and about enjoying this paid vacation. And so they have no problems with exposing themselves to the risk of getting COVID when they're out having fun. But all of a sudden, when it comes to showing up at a job and doing some work, oh, no, 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 I can't, I can't go to work because I don't want to risk COVID. So People saying that are only saying that because they don't want to be honest and admit that they enjoy uh, living on the dole. Although I don't know why people should be shy about admitting that they would rather not work if they don't have to. And if the government is paying you a lot of money not to work, well, then you're, you're not going to work. So with all of this evidence out there, it is completely ridiculous for government to say that these extended unemployment benefits are playing no role in incentivizing people not to return to work. And since they have taken that ridiculous position, well, obviously, they're never going to change. Nobody in government is going to connect these obvious dots to the extended unemployment benefits and people deciding to remain unemployed. And so they're going to continue to extend them indefinitely, which means more and more people will turn this temporary vacation into a permanent vacation. Getting back to the reactions, though, to the jobs report from an investment community that was really shocked uh, by how weak the report ended up being relative to these lofty expectations. First of all, I think that the report itself really should be a game changer for the view that the Fed is going to be surprising the markets by hiking sooner rather than later. I've been talking about that on this podcast pretty much all year. That has been the theme that has been circulating throughout the investment community that, hey, based on how strong this recovery is, the Fed is actually going to be raising rates sooner than it is forecasting. And of course, looking around at the strength in uh, prices, increases in commodity prices, that inflation is going to come in hotter than what the Fed expects. And so stronger growth and more inflation means that the Fed is going to move sooner rather than later with rate hikes and maybe tapering its asset purchases. And that really had supported a rise of the dollar that was acting as a big headwind uh, for the price of gold and silver based on the fact that the markets believe the Fed was actually going to be more hawkish than its current posture would suggest. Now, I think that this jobs report should basically put a nail in the coffin of that idea, which I never thought was a valid idea anyway. I've been saying that the markets are wrong to anticipate that the Fed is going to be more aggressive. It's going to be less aggressive. The Fed is actually going to open up the monetary spigots even wider. They're not going to fight inflation. They're going to surrender to inflation. In fact, what we're going to have is stagflation, and that's why the Fed is going to choose to create even more inflation rather than fight it because it's going to be more concerned with the weakness in the economy rather than the strength of prices. So I expect there to be even bigger reactions to this jobs number uh, in the weeks ahead in the currency markets, in the precious metals markets, than the reactions that we've already seen on Friday, which I will get to uh, in a moment. But what's the easiest choice you can make? 
window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Also, look at the reaction from the reporters. Look at Steve Leisman, who is the senior economic reporter for CNBC. This guy was claiming that this weak jobs report actually vindicated Powell. Like this proves that the Fed is correct, that Powell's idea that, hey, we're not even going to think about thinking about thinking about raising interest rates is correct because, see, Powell understood that the recovery is still nascent and still has a long way to go and that the economy is not as strong as we're all thinking, that we have a lot more work to do. And this jobs report proves that the Fed is right. And this is why they're correct in letting the markets know that they're not thinking about thinking about thinking about raising interest rates because, see, they anticipated uh, a jobs number like this and they know there's a lot more work to be done to get where we need to go and therefore the Fed has to continue to provide the monetary supports to help us get there. But the reality is this weak jobs report actually proves the opposite. What it proves is that Powell is wrong, that the Federal Reserve is wrong, and that their policies are not effective. Their policies are not creating a real economic recovery. We lost manufacturing jobs in April. That is, strong economies don't lose manufacturing jobs. They gain manufacturing jobs. What the Fed has succeeded in doing is creating inflation and inflating bubbles. That's it. And this jobs report is more evidence that that's all that's been accomplished. And that is why the trade deficits are exploding. It's because we're spending all the money that we're printing, buying imported products. This is not legitimate economic growth. And that's not why we're not getting jobs because you don't need real jobs for phony growth. Now, of course, the jobs have to be somewhere. Yeah, the jobs are in China. The jobs are in other countries. But eventually, the people working hard to provide Americans with products in exchange for paper are going to realize that they're patsies in this whole exchange, and they're going to stop doing it. They're going to want to consume what they produce instead of allowing Americans to consume it, and they're not going to want our paper, and the dollar is going to plunge. And another thing that this report is doing is it is basically getting people to reassess their views of inflation. Right? They think, oh, the labor market is not as strong as we thought. The economy is not as strong as we thought. Maybe we don't have to be worried as much about inflation. And that's another reason why they may believe that these anticipated rate hikes are not actually going to come because this weakness in the labor market or reduction in strength of the labor market uh, takes the pressure off inflation. And it does not. In fact, it actually adds to it. You still have this view of 
among economists and bankers that the Phillips curve is what determines inflation, that inflation is a function of people working, and that as long as you don't have a lot of people working, you don't have to worry about inflation. In fact, look at the comments that came out earlier in the week from Philip Lane. He is the European Central Bank's chief economist. So he's the top economist at the ECB. Look at what this guy said. Quote, prolonged weakness in the labor market will offset inflationary pressures in the eurozone. So in other words, by having a lot of people unemployed, it's going to offset the pressures of inflation, which is nonsense. It actually exacerbates those pressures. Look, the ECB prints a bunch of money, right? That's the inflation, right? Now, all that money in the system is going to be putting upward pressure on prices, right? How does fewer people working alleviate that pressure? It doesn't. More people working might alleviate that pressure to the extent that they help produce goods so that people could use that money to buy those goods. Because if we're increasing the supply of money, the only way to prevent prices from rising is to also increase the supply of goods. But if people are not working and therefore they're not producing goods, but you're printing more money, now you have even more upward pressure on prices. And if you look at the dynamic of what happens when people are unemployed, the government prints money and gives it to them. So the more people who are not employed and who are not earning a paycheck, the more people who are now dependent on government checks. And so the government has to print even more money to provide the unemployed with their benefits than they would have to print if there were fewer people who were unemployed in need of those benefits. So in all circumstances, an unemployment problem doesn't offset an inflation problem. It actually makes an inflation problem even worse. And the same thing is going to be true in the United States. The fact that the labor market is weak is going to mean that inflation is going to be even stronger than would be the case if the labor market were stronger. No, what is really crazy about this idea that we don't have to worry about inflation as long as there's weakness in the labor market. I mean, what about the 1970s? I mean, how could you dismiss that entire period of history as if it didn't even exist? I mean, what was interesting about the 1970s is that when that decade happened originally, the economists of the day were completely surprised because they thought it was impossible. They did not believe, and these are Keynesian economists, right? So not all economists, but the Keynesian economists did not believe it was possible for high inflation and high unemployment to coexist. They believed that high unemployment would cancel out the high inflation. They believed exactly what Philip Lane, the chief economist of the ECB, believes now. That's what they believed in the 1960s. But what they learned in the 1970s was that they were wrong, right? And they came up with the name stagflation to describe this new concept that they didn't think was possible, the combination of high unemployment and high inflation. Well, once they discovered that it was possible, they came up with a name for it, and the name was stagflation. Well, since they now know it's possible because it's in the history books, why do you have the same Keynesian economists today making the same ridiculous claims that they made in the 1960s about how it was impossible to have high inflation and high unemployment at the same time when they already know it's possible because they have a name for it? 
In the newest season of Wondery's business wars, vaccine wars, they follow the pharmaceutical industry's unprecedented race to save lives and in the process creating a market worth billions of dollars. When the coronavirus pandemic first began, the timeline for a safe and effective vaccine could have easily been years. After all, the average vaccine takes a decade or more to research, develop, test, and bring the market. And for those, only 6% actually reach the market. For the coronavirus, it was speculated that the best case scenario was that a vaccine might arrive in late 2021. Instead, the entire process took less than a year. The companies working on a vaccine needed to make scientific breakthroughs and they needed to deal with manufacturing and distribution logistics. And all the while in a toxic U.S. political environment and with the virus eventually producing variants. And then the virus mutated and the variants came into play. Over 100 companies were part of the race, but only four grew to become the front runners. You know, I really enjoy this particular format. It harkens back to the day of radio. I like the way that they produce it. It's entertaining in its audio format. And it's ideal for listening to when you're in your car or when you're at the gym or doing other things where audio is your primary way of being entertained. And the way it's narrated and the way it's acted really creates an actual experience for the listener to make it more entertaining than if they simply read the content as a lecture rather than as an entertaining experience. So you can listen to the latest season of Business Wars, Vaccine Wars on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Anyway, let me move forward because I want to talk about the market reaction to the jobs numbers. First, in the foreign exchange market, very typical expected reaction. The dollar got pounded Across the board, dollar index dropped about 70 basis points. We closed at 90.22. This is the lowest weekly close for the dollar index since early January. In fact, the dollar index is now barely up on the year. I think it ended the year just below 90, and now we're just above 90. But at one point, we were higher based on this false idea that the Fed was going to be raising rates sooner rather than later. And the dollar had a pretty good gain. It was up almost 4% on the year, not quite 4, maybe 3.7, 3.8% on the year, which was a pretty big gain on anticipating you know, a more hawkish Fed. Well, since those anticipations have not been realized, the dollar has now surrendered almost all those gains. My guess is that by next week, it will have surrendered all those gains and the U.S. dollar will be down on the year and those losses are going to accelerate as the year progresses. And I think by the time 2021 comes to an end, we'll see a substantially lower dollar than where it was at the beginning of the year. But I think a much bigger decline is going to come in 2022 than the one that we're going to have in 2021. Also, as you would expect, the price of gold and silver moved higher on the day. Gold price is up about $16 on the close, 1830 spot 70. 
Silver added 15 cents. It closed at 27.44. Now, those gains were not as big as you might have expected, although they were a bit higher intraday. But I think one of the reasons that we didn't get a bigger move in gold on Friday was because we got a huge move in gold on Thursday. So despite the fact that most people believed that today's jobs report was going to be a strong one, we saw a rise in the price of gold anyway in the face of what was going to be a strong jobs report. And the fact that the move wasn't even bigger may be a reflection of the fact that it did have a bigger move the previous day. In fact, on the week, the price of gold was up almost $60 an ounce. So that was a very, very strong uh, week for gold. Silver also added about a dollar and a half on the week. And that may be why the gain on Friday was somewhat diminished because again, I think it was up about a dollar on Thursday. But I think we're going to see some big follow through next week in both gold and silver. Because again, I think we have a game changer here. I think the headwinds that were preventing gold and silver from moving up, meaning the expectation that the Fed was going to act sooner rather than later when it comes to raising rates and tapering its asset purchases. I think this weaker than expected jobs report has put those concerns to rest and that people now realize that rates aren't going anywhere, and so gold and silver are going higher. In fact, yields on the 10-year to 30-year U.S. Treasury were down a bit on the week, although they were higher on Friday, which may have surprised a lot of people why we didn't get a rise in the bond market and a drop in yields in the face of much weaker than expected economic data. To me, that indicates that there's not a lot of upside in the U.S. bond market from here as far as price is concerned and that yields are headed higher, which is exactly what you would expect in a stagflationary environment. It's inflation, not economic growth, that's going to drive bond yields higher. The government, of course, is going to create even more inflation to prevent those yields from rising, which is the equivalent of throwing gasoline on an inflationary fire. All the stock market indexes, again, positive, right? Bad news is good news when it comes to the stock market. I guess all news is good news because even had the report been stronger than expected, it's likely that the markets would have risen. Uh, We got the Dow and the S&P hitting new all-time record highs. Not so for the NASDAQ or the Russell 2000. Those indexes were up, but not at record highs. And again, what is driving that is the rotation that is going on in the markets right now as people are moving out of the growth-oriented stocks. In fact, I think the NASDAQ broke a four-day losing streak on Friday. It had been down every other day of the week, and it finally managed a, a positive day. But what's happening beneath the surface of the market is that people are moving from the momentum growth-oriented names to value dividend-paying stocks, which are, of course, the exact types of stocks that I already own and that we have been buying for our clients at Europe Pacific Capital, both in their brokerage accounts, their separately managed accounts, or the mutual funds. So the exact strategy uh, that we have been advocating, this is what people are now rotating to. And so that's why you're seeing the averages uh, work the way they are, because the averages that have more of these Um, value-oriented names within them are doing better than the ones that are dominated by the growth and momentum names. In fact, there's a very sad example 
of a contrarian indicator where you have somebody, you know, throwing in the towel and capitulating at the lows. There was a very famous value investor who actually committed suicide. I think it was late last month. Charles Duvall, 59-year-old guy, so just one year older than me, right, killed himself because of the underperformance of his funds. I mean, over the years, the guy had stuck to his guns. He was a value-oriented investor. And so he continued to pursue a value-oriented strategy to the dismay of his investors who, over the years, had been jumping ship. And I think the assets under management had gone down from about $20 billion, uh, I think, in 2008 to under $2 billion at, when he decided to close his fund, basically shut down and send everybody back their money. And then he decided to kill himself, which, I mean, obviously the guy must have had some other issues to do that. But it's, it's a great example that it's not just that value investors, value managers were throwing in the towel. They were literally throwing in the towel on life and committing suicide because that's how bad it's been for value investors because we've been in this massive bubble of growth over value. And I think that is the type of anecdotal evidence that you would see at the bottom. All the guy had to do was stick around for a little bit longer and he may have been able to see the turn. He may have been able to have been vindicated uh, for all the years that he was encouraging his clients to stick with value and not chase growth because I've been doing the same thing. I mean, I feel this guy's pain. I've been a value investor. I've been ignoring these bubbles and it's been a very difficult decade. But don't worry, I'm not gonna commit suicide. I, I, I'm confident that I'm right and I wanna be around uh, for the vindication. And fortunately, I don't think it's going to take that much longer. So I'm not going to have to live to be an old man. I mean, I still hope I, I live uh, to a ripe old age, but I don't think I'm going to have to, to be vindicated on this trade. I think it would have been great if Charles could have stuck around for a little while longer, because I think he would have enjoyed the same type of vindication uh, that I'm going to experience. And it's very sad that uh, that would happen. But I'm only pointing it out as just more anecdotal evidence, a contrarian indicator of a change in trend. And we're seeing that now in the markets. But in particular, look at what is going on in the commodity markets that continue to boom on Friday. Now, there was a little bit of a relief in the oil price. Oil prices were down a little bit on the day. Oil closed below 65 at 64.90. But on the week, they rose because oil closed the prior week at 63.58, and now we're 64.90. So another solid up week uh, for oil prices. This is going to continue. But look at what's happening for some of the other commodities. Check out copper prices. All-time record high for copper. The price of copper up just over 3% on Friday. We're now at $4.75 almost a pound, copper. All-time record high. I remember on this podcast when we broke $4. 
I came out and said, I think we're going to take out the $4.5 record high, which was the previous record, and we've now done that. In fact, we're putting some distance between the old record high and where we are right now. In fact, probably within the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at $5 copper. But it's not just copper. Look what happened. Aluminum prices up 2% on Friday. Zinc prices up 2.5%. You're seeing metal prices going up across the board. Also, agriculture commodities, they're moving up. Corn prices up almost 2% on Friday. Wheat prices up over 1%. Rice prices up over 2%. Soybeans up 1.3%. Soy meal up 3.4% on the day. Cocoa up better than 2%. Orange juice up 3.2% on the day. Look at lumber. I've been talking about lumber ad nauseum on this podcast. Lumber prices added almost another 4% on Friday. We're now at 1670 per thousand board foot. 1670. We're going to be at 2000 probably within the next couple of months. Prices are going ballistic. Yet everybody's got their head up their butts when it comes to inflation thinking that none of this matters. Hey, as long as we have people who are not working, as long as we have a lot of people out of the labor force, we don't have to worry about these soaring prices. We don't have to worry about all the money that the Fed is printing because we've got some kind of get out of jail free card when it comes to inflation because we've got so many people who are unemployed. No, as I said earlier, all these unemployed people simply compound an already bad inflation problem and make that problem much worse. And what's really going to light a fire under the gold and silver market is going to be when traders figure this out that, you know, we're going to have high unemployment and we're going to have high inflation. We're going to have stagflation. The Fed's going to do nothing about the inflation because it's going to be more concerned about unemployment and the economy. And since the Fed believes that inflation is the way you stimulate a weak economy, then they're going to tolerate even more inflation if they think inflation solves their other problem. Of course, it doesn't. They'll never figure that out. It makes their other problem worse. But you remember, these are the same politicians who can't see the link between paying people to not work and people choosing not to work. So if they can't figure out something as obvious as that, Well, why are they going to figure this out, which is slightly less obvious? And finally, when it comes to the markets, I got a comment on the cryptocurrencies and how they responded to the jobs report. Bitcoin did manage a pretty big rally on Friday. A lot of people may be attributing that to the weaker than expected jobs report and the fact that it means that we're going to have more inflation and more money printing. But I think the real reason that you saw a rise in cryptocurrencies on Friday I think it has nothing to do with the jobs report. I think it has to do with the fact that Elon Musk is going to be hosting Saturday Night Live later tonight. I think that event is more significant to the crypto bubble than what's going on in the U.S. economy. In fact, if you look at the coin that is benefiting the most, it's Dogecoin. This coin, as I am speaking now, is the number four cryptocurrency by market cap. It has a market cap of over 92 billion dollars it is within five billion dollars of being the number three coin by market cap Binance coin uh, has a market cap of 97 billion dollars of course 
both those coins way behind Ethereum, which has a market cap of $420 billion, and Bitcoin, which has a market cap of just over $1.1 trillion. But Bitcoin's share of uh, the overall crypto market cap continues to diminish. Bitcoin is now just 45.4% of all the cryptocurrencies, which again proves that the whole thing is nonsense because there's nothing special about Bitcoin. There are 9,649 cryptocurrencies as of today. Of course, that number continuously increases because there is an unlimited supply of cryptocurrencies. And what continues to amuse me, and I talked about this before, is to listen to all of the Bitcoin maximalists bashing Dogecoin talking about how ridiculous it is, how crazy it is, how people are gambling when they buy that, they can lose a lot of money. You know, it's a pyramid, it's a Ponzi, whatever they want to say. But there's, again, there's an old expression. When you live in a glass house, you can't throw stones. If you own Bitcoin, you can't criticize anybody else for buying any other cryptocurrency because everything that you say about Dogecoin, you can say the exact same thing about Bitcoin. In fact, everything that the people who own Bitcoin are saying about Dogecoin, right? The people who own Dogecoin could point out, hey, wait a minute, what you're saying about Dogecoin is the same thing that the gold bugs are saying about crypto, that all the criticisms that people who own gold have of Bitcoin, the people who own Bitcoin have the identical criticisms for people who own Dogecoin. So, hey, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? You can't claim that Bitcoin is better than gold, but then not concede that Dogecoin might be better than Bitcoin. Because Dogecoin is going up a lot faster than Bitcoin. I mean, take a look at it. The price of Bitcoin is imploding if you want to price it in terms of Dogecoin, which, of course, is exactly what the Bitcoiners have been doing, uh, comparing Bitcoin to gold and saying, hey, gold is a lousy investment because look at how much it's gone down in terms of Bitcoin. Well, the same thing can be said about Bitcoin in terms of Dogecoin. Look at how much value Bitcoin has lost in terms of Dogecoin. And, and therefore, you can make the same ridiculous conclusion about Bitcoin that the Bitcoiners have been making about gold. But, you know, I have a feeling that this Elon Musk SNL appearance, maybe this will be some type of short term top, uh, maybe even uh, a permanent top in Dogecoin. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess everybody expects Elon Musk to actually tout pump up Dogecoin on his appearance. I'm not really sure what the market expects Elon Musk to do or you know what type of skits uh, they anticipate having that may relate to cryptocurrencies in general or Dogecoin in particular. I don't know. But to me, this has all the hallmarks of probably a classic buy the rumor, sell the fact. People have been excited for weeks about this appearance. And now on Saturday night, they'll have an opportunity to sell into the SNL broadcast. So it'll be interesting to watch the action in cryptocurrencies leading to uh, that broadcast Saturday night during the broadcast and immediately following the broadcast. In fact, I think a lot of crypto people, I think they're going to have one eye on the television to watch Elon Musk and the other eye on their screens to watch the market. Probably there's never been and Saturday Night Live episode that's probably had more influence 
on a market than this one. Of course, the only influence is gonna be on the crypto market, but the fact that this whole market is so influenced by one of the biggest pumpers on social media going on Saturday Night Live, again, this just shows you how ridiculous this whole thing is. This is just one gigantic bubble if the biggest fundamental event is somebody hosting a comedy show. And also, I think the rotation out of growth and into value is going to come into play with Bitcoin as well. Only in this case, it's going to be out of Bitcoin and into gold because Bitcoin really is the epitome of the growth trade because it's all growth and no value. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking a little bit about Jeff Gunlock and a YouTube video that we posted to the channel yesterday that I encourage everybody to watch. And of course, the reason I did it is I listened to this interview that Gunlock did. And the reason I listened to it, a client had forwarded me the link and he said, hey, Jeff Gunlock is sounding a lot like you. You ought to listen to this. And of course, we sound a lot like each other. Gunlock sounds like me. I sound like him because we have the same uh, philosophy. We have the same worldview. I think we have a similar understanding of economic principles, of investing. That's why I've been a fan of Jeff Gunlock for a long time. He's a smart guy, and it doesn't surprise me that a lot of the things that he's saying are similar to the things that I'm saying. But what does surprise me, although it, it wasn't a surprise because it's happened before, is the fact that he has a tendency to not just say the same things that I'm saying, but to actually use the identical analogies that I use to help make these concepts easier to understand, he uses my exact analogies, but then never gives me credit for coming up with them, which I think is wrong. I think if you're going to borrow an analogy that somebody else has created to explain a concept that you should credit the creator of the analogy when you are going to use it. But not only did Jeff Gunlock not credit me for coming up with the analogy, during this particular interview, he claimed credit for the analogy as his own. He said, in my analogy, my example, he kept claiming ownership of something that he clearly got from me. I mean, this is one of the analogies that is probably most associated with me. It's kind of like a trademark analogy. It's a classic Peter Schiff analogy. I mean, I've been using this analogy repeatedly going all the way back, I think, to 2005 when I first used it in an article that I published. The title of it was Even Stephen Roach Has It Wrong. And the analogy has to do with a group of castaways stranded on a desert island and they're on this island and of course you know they're there and they've got nothing and so they have to divide up the work and some of the castaways are assigned certain jobs and in my analogy of course I make reference to the nationality of the castaways because I am trying in my original example to explain the relationship that the United States have with Asia when it comes to trade where they do all the production and we just consume. And so in my example of these six castaways, five of them are Asians 
and one is an American, and the Asians get assigned all these productive jobs, and the American gets assigned uh, the job of eating. He's consuming, and all the Asians are producing. So in the Jeff Gunlock analogy, he doesn't reference their nationality. He just says they're castaways, but all of them get assigned productive jobs of hunting and fishing and building a fire and cooking the food. And then one guy gets assigned the job of consuming. And he's showing how the guy who gets the job of consuming is not actually doing anything of value. And he's not actually adding anything to the island community. But the analogy was 100% taken from my analogy. I mean, he's using many of the same words uh, that I used. And again, you know, I have no problem with Gunlock using my analogies to help explain concepts that we agree on. I'm not saying that, hey, Jeff Gunlock understanding of economics is the result of his listening to my podcasts. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that he is learning better ways to explain these concepts to other people. That's the whole purpose of my analogy is to help put this economic concept into a form that makes it easily understandable by a layperson who maybe doesn't have a lot of economic education, but can understand this basic story about these castaways on an island. And so what Jeff Gunlock needs to do when he wants to use an analogy that he learns about from me is credit me. So what Jeff Gunlock should have said during this talk was, hey, you know, Peter Schiff has a great analogy to explain this concept. And here's his analogy. That's all he had to say. Because, you know, whenever I am using something that somebody else came up with, I will always credit the creator for the content. I mean, I do it all the time in my podcast. I listen to the news. I listen to what other people have to say. And if somebody says something unique that I want to repeat, then I always credit that person for having said it first. I never try to claim credit for something that I didn't do. And that is what bothers me about what Jeff Gunlock is doing. But of course, on a bigger picture, I think it would be great validation of what I'm saying and what I'm doing if a guy of Jeff Gunlock's stature were to just admit that he listens to my podcast, that he reads my books or watches my YouTube videos. Because while I have a pretty good following already, where I think I need to have a bigger following is in the mainstream. And that's where Gunlock has so much clout and so much credibility that it may help me bring my ideas, which are so badly needed, into the mainstream. You know, it really would be a good thing if more people in the financial media, if more people in government paid attention to the things that I'm saying, paid attention to the criticisms that I have of the Federal Reserve and our current monetary system. I mean, wouldn't it have been great if the powers that be had paid attention to me prior to the 2008 financial crisis when I was sounding the alarm and warning about what the Fed was doing and the mistakes that they were making and how they were inflating a stock market bubble and how a financial crisis would ensue when the bubble popped. 
if a guy like Gunlock would simply acknowledge that, hey, there's a lot of truth to what Peter Schiff is saying, and even I listen to his podcasts, and hey, he comes up with these great analogies to explain these concepts, and hey, some of you people in Washington, D.C., some of the people on Wall Street, you ought to listen to this guy and understand these analogies because he knows what he's talking about. That, I think, would go a long way to helping me achieve the goal that I have, which is to educate people to understand economics and to understand the damage that the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government are doing to the economy. I think Gunlock understands the damage that that is being done, and he knows that I am doing an excellent job of communicating these mistakes to the public, and I think he can help me reach an even larger audience and maybe even reach an audience that may be in a position to make a difference. I know there are some people that think, oh, you know, he's he doesn't want to admit uh, that he listens to you because he's worried that somehow his credibility will be diminished. He doesn't have to worry about that at all. I mean, I remember one time Jim Cramer on CNBC said something negative about Jeff Gunlock and Then Jeff Gunlock, I think, on Twitter said, well, I'm just never going to be on CNBC again. You know, if you're going to criticize me, I'm not going to be on your air. And the very next day, they forced Jim Cramer, basically, he had to apologize. He had to come back crawling on his hands and knees with his tail between his legs, just begging the forgiveness of Jeff Gunlock, uh, because I'm sure the network came down on him like a ton of bricks because they could not risk having Jeff Gunlock boycott CNBC because he's that important of a guest. I mean, whenever they have him on, they roll out the red carpet. They promote it for days in advance. They give him an entire hour uh, to talk. I mean, they treat him like royalty. He's the Bond King, and so maybe he's the rating king. And so there's nothing that he could say that would kick him off CNBC or any other mainstream media outlet. In fact, it would be personally satisfying to me. I would love to see Jeff Gunlock mentioned my name on CNBC because nobody else is allowed to mention my name. That's why the last time when he used my analogy, when he did the analogy and I made another YouTube video about that, running into an old college friend and saying, hey, how you doing? If he would have said to CNBC, hey, you know, Peter Schiff has a great analogy to explain this. Had he said that on CNBC and stuck it in their faces, yeah, it would have been personally satisfying to me because CNBC doesn't think their audience should be listening to Peter Schiff because they they banned me from their air. And not that I even want to go on anymore. I don't. If they were to invite me on, I would decline. Uh, but the reason they stopped inviting me on is because they don't want their audience to hear any of the things I have to say Yet Jeff Gunlock is basically saying the same thing. And in fact, in some cases, he's saying the identical thing when he's using my analogies. So if he were to remind the people at CNBC that while they don't want their audience listening to Peter Schiff, that he listens to Peter Schiff, yes, I would find that uh, personally satisfying. But more important uh, than my own satisfaction would be the fact that he would be helping to bring my ideas and the things that I'm espousing to a more mainstream audience, which is exactly what has to happen for me to make a real difference in the course 
that this nation is headed on. I know that we're headed for a complete economic disaster. I think Gunlock knows that too, but I think I can be an important voice in what this country does in the aftermath of this crisis and which fork in the road we end up taking. Do we end up going down the road to serfdom or do we make a U-turn back to free market capitalism? And to the extent that Gunlock can help elevate my credibility by just admitting uh, that he's a fan and crediting me publicly when he uses analogies that he knows that I created, I think that would help me be more influential in leading this country in the right direction rather than allow it to continue to move forward in the wrong direction. But anyway, watch the YouTube video that I put up and decide for yourself. Is this a random coincidence? Am I, you know, just making a mountain out of a molehill? Or is it obvious that Gunlock did not just make up this analogy of seven castaways stranded on a desert island, that he actually got the analogy for me? And rather than giving me the credit I deserve for creating it, he just took credit for my analogy. (laughs) 